Folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Tuesday, August the 28th, 2012, and this is episode 969 of the Survival Podcast. I have a great show for you today. We're going to be talking with two United States Marine Corps officer veterans uh, about a program called Warrior Hike to help veterans uh, out in many different ways. Uh, some with some financial assistance through uh, Veterans of Foreign Wars and things like that, and some just with future plans, basically, to help veterans just with the readjustment. And the interview only goes about 25 minutes long, so after I'm done with the interview, I'll continue the show for its regular scheduled time, and I'm going to talk to you about my experience a little bit beyond what I talk about with these two gentlemen with with re uh, reintroduction to society as a veteran. And not that these guys that are coming home today aren't, dealing with a hell of a lot more than I did, seriously. I mean, it, it, it almost pales in comparison, but what I'd like to give you guys is a perspective and some things to think about, uh, because I am going to ask you to support what these guys are doing today uh, in any way that you can. I think the work that they're doing is important, and I think, yes, we owe it to our soldiers when they come home to help them with coming home, and I think that's something that a lot of people don't even realize. Like, a guy doesn't have to be injured physically to need help coming home. And uh, I want to explain that today maybe at a, a different level than I have in the past. I think this is important to our future because we literally have millions of veterans um, coming home and having already came home, and not just from the current conflicts, from past conflicts and just from past service. And we're going to need to look after these guys because, quite frankly, we might need them to help look after us in some of the darker things that could be in our future. So uh, I think that there's certainly just a sense of duty here, and I also think there's a sense of honor here, and I think there's a sense of self-preservation here as well, that we do need to be looking after each other, and specifically we need to be looking after people who have served our nation abroad. In fact, I'm going to say it right up front, even if you don't agree with the mission some of these men are sent on, that doesn't mean you can't support the man who did what he did because he believed in doing his duty. I think you'll find that many veterans in their older years realize that maybe it wasn't the smartest thing. Maybe it wasn't what they should have done. Maybe it wasn't how they should have spent their time. Many remain proud of their service till the day that they die. Uh, many have conflicting emotions. But in the end, we're talking about fellow citizens who are willing to do what others were not. Please think about that as we go through today's show. Before I bring them on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? Get Berkey Water Filtration Systems. What the heck else would you get? But if you go over his website, Directive21.com, you'll find that not only can you get Berkey Water Filtration Systems, you can get some other cool items for your prepping needs. But when it comes to a Berkey, why should you get a Berkey? Well, everybody knows they're great. They look great. They work great. They're affordable. They're extremely cost-effective over the life of the system, which is pretty much damn near forever. All you do is replace the uh, filters in it. They make your water safe to drink. Uh, in, a, in a time of crisis, and they make your water better to drink every day. So why not have a Berkey in your home, especially if you're on grid water? Uh, you know, I mean, I also point out sometimes that you ever get a boil water advisory? Yeah, last week we screwed something up, and we've just figured it out. So please start boiling your water. 
Oh, okay, what about the last week that we've been drinking it? So there's all kinds of great reasons to have a water filtration system, and specifically a Berkey. The reason you should get it, though, from Jeff instead of some Johnny-come-lately is because Jeff's been supporting the show for almost four years now. And he has always done everything necessary to keep the audience happy. And, folks, I don't mean this in a bad way, but you're not the easiest people in the world to keep happy. You guys expect perfection. And if there is a mistake, you expect an immediate mission, an immediate resolution to the problem. It's what Jeff does. You don't know what you're going to get with somebody else. Even a great product, occasionally people in the mail screw something up. They break something. A part gets left out. You never know, but you know with Jeff, you're going to get great care when you buy your first system and everything you need for down the road, you're going to continue to get great service and care. Check it out today, directive21.com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. I tell you all the time, you need ammo to go with your guns. Well, you need training too. A gun, with, a gun even loaded in the hands of an untrained person can be dangerous. Uh, it gets overused by the gun activist people or whatever. But there is a point there, and we should acknowledge the point. And sometimes the biggest reason it's dangerous is because when it comes time to use it, You'll freeze. You won't know what to do. I know you think you will, but will you? The only thing we can do to make sure that we're prepared to defend ourselves, our family, our loved ones, and strangers on the street, if we're called on to do so, is to train to our highest level capable. And you need help with that. You need to take professional training if you really want to be confident with that. Fortress Defense Consultants is one of the best schools in the country. I believe that it, you could not be in better hands than with Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre. Again, Fortress Defense Consultants at FortressDefense.com. And hey, guess what, folks? Not only will they teach you how to defend yourself, how to use that weapon, but they'll teach you how to save lives as, as well. If you're going to carry deadly force, I think you need to know uh, also how to help people once they've been injured. Not just the bad guy either, not just the bleeding heart stuff, but hey, if you're in a, in a, in a shooting situation, even if you come out okay, even if you take out the threat, there's a good chance that someone there might need your help. I often wonder when we hear about you know, the large-scale shootings where they say, you know, X number of people died and people on our side say, hey, what if there had been one armed citizen there? My other thought is, yeah, that would have been great, but what if there had been 10 citizens there that were not only armed but knew how to save lives? Would some of those people who had passed been kept alive long enough for first responders to get there? So Frank will teach you both sides of that equation. Uh, next up, I want to remind you, Hickory, North Carolina, I will be there. I hope you'll be there, too. Self-Reliance Expo, Friday and Saturday. We are having an early meetup. Full details will come out as soon as I get them back from Ron and Scott. But just understand, it's basically going to be this. You're going to show up, and you're going to get in a half hour early over the posted times. You're just going to show up. And there'll be a sign or a meeting area for you guys that I'll let you guys know about. And a half hour early, you'll get escorted in. You'll get to meet with me and probably some other cool people. We'll hang out, maybe do a little Q&A. Then a half hour after the door's open, I'll do my presentation on modern survivalism, uh, 12 tenants. We'll also be doing some sort of an after-hours meetup. I'm working the final ideas out for that this uh, this week, and I'll put those out for you guys uh, at the beginning of next week as well. But I hope to see many of you guys there. Uh, also consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive benefits, you support the show, Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps, email before you join, I want to wrap, and I know I went long because I had more to talk about, but let's go ahead and introduce our special guest today. Uh, first, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to do this a little bit differently because I have two guys here. Captain Sean Gobin enlisted in the Marine Corps in 1994 as an infantryman and received his commission upon graduating from the University of Mississippi in 2001. As an armor officer, Sean served as a platoon commander in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003 and again in 2005. 
From 2010 to 2011, Sean served as an Afghan National Security Force Development Officer in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. Upon completion of Warrior Hike, Sean plans to pursue, and he is currently pursuing, actually, a bachelor's degree in business administration at the University of Virginia. Uh, Captain Mark Silvers enlisted in the Marine Corps in 2006 and received his commission upon graduating from the University of Virginia in 2007. While deployed in, to Afghanistan from 2009 to 2010, Mark served as a platoon commander. Uh, Captain Silvers deployed again from 2011 to 2012 as a second Marine division aide de camp following his time in the Marine Corps. With the completion of Warrior Hike, Mark is now pursuing a master's degree in business admin at the University of Virginia as well. So these guys are guys that went in enlisted and earned their commission from enlisted. That's always been the officers I enjoyed serving the most under during my military career. And they put together Warrior Hike. And in doing so, they've created kind of a unique way to both help veterans financially and with future hikes to help veterans just with kind of a readjustment back into society. I think we're going to need that. And with that, hey, Mark, Sean, welcome to the Survival po Podcast, guys. Hey, thanks a lot. Hey, thanks for having us. Cool. Um, I'm going to let you guys figure out who answers what, or maybe one answers the first half, who answers the other half. Uh, you guys are military officers, so I'm sure you can work that out between the two of you. Uh, we, we don't do a lot of three-way uh, interviews, but uh, this is going to be cool. Um, and the first time I heard about you guys, a listener sent in to me what you guys were doing, and you're doing something called Warrior Hike. And this was like... Really cool to me as a veteran myself, as someone that's concerned with, you know, uh, veteran affairs, and as someone who spent an awful lot of time, uh, right after I got out of the military personally on the AT, uh, I thought I really want to get these guys on. But, uh, I guess you guys can decide who's going to start out with the first question I got for you guys, but can someone just, one of the two of you just sum up kind of what is Warrior Hike? I'll just switch off with, uh, Mark and myself. Mark, you can take the first one and we'll just keep switching off. Sure, yeah. Uh, Warrior Hike is uh, a charity that Sean and I came up with, uh, and basically what we did was we hiked through the entire Appalachian Trail to raise money for wounded veterans, uh, specifically to provide adaptive vehicles for entities from Iraq and Afghanistan. And what made you think, like, like hiking was the way to do this? Yeah, the, uh, the idea for the hike originally was my idea. Um, I've always wanted to hike the Appalachian Trail, I tried to do it after college, um, but the Marine Corps didn't give me enough time off before I had to report to my first duty station. So I had to wait until I was leaving active duty service, which Mark and I both decided we were going to uh, leave active duty service uh, this spring and then start grad school in the fall, uh, which left a perfect window of opportunity to hike the Appalachian Trail. So how it, how it all began was we were sitting at breakfast one day, and uh I asked Mark if he wanted to do the Appalachian Trail with me. He said no. Uh, it took about a month of uh, cajoling him into doing it, and then finally he broke down and said, all right, hey, I'll hike the trail with you, but let's do it for uh, a good cause. Let's turn it into a fundraiser. And that's how the uh, the idea came to be. And, like, how, how big a piece of the trail did you guys hike? We, we hiked the, the entire, entire thing. The entire trail, so Georgia to Maine. Yep. Well, you guys got me beat. I hiked from PA to New York, and I thought I did something. Um, but, uh, you know, kind of on that note, like when I got out of the military, um, I, though I had served during the, the first Gulf War, uh, my role there was minimal. And then I spent three years in Panama and Honduras, uh, not really in any kind of a combat situation, but it was still kind of like a, 
a real big adjustment to re-enter uh, the civilian world, if you guys know where I'm coming from with that. Like, it was a lot of culture shock. It seemed like in four years, a lot of things changed. And I took that time, and I, I didn't have any kind of a cause with it, but I took that time on the trail. It was, uh, you know, several weeks. And it really kind of helped me get out of that, you know, straight up all the time military mode back into more of a low key civilian mode. Did you guys find any kind of like a, a healing process like that for yourselves? Not that, you know, you know what I mean? Like just like kind of a recentering? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, to start off with, uh, Sean had just gotten back from Afghanistan in January and I got back in March, just 12 days before we started the trail. Uh, so we were fresh off deployments when we started the trail. And as we hiked, we found uh, that we were running into a lot of other veterans that were hiking, uh, doing exactly the same thing. They were transitioning back to society, um, and it, it, w- it was a great transitional activity. And that's that's why uh, we're actually I'm kind of getting ahead of ahead of ourselves here. But uh, we plan to make Warrior Hike an annual event to encourage more veterans as well as wounded veterans to get out on the trail uh, to help in that healing process. As a matter of fact, the first person to actually through hike the entire Appalachian Trail was a World War II veteran. Uh, when he got back from World War II, he pretty much told his friends that he was going to go walk off the war and uh, started down in Georgia and, and walked north. That's awesome. I had no idea about that. I do know that, like, as I've been watching all the things about people coming home and having trouble readapting, uh, it made me think back to many of the Vietnam War uh, era uh, soldiers that I knew as I was growing up as a child that were dealing with this. And one of the things I thought back to is how so many more soldiers served in World War II. I mean, it was a much bigger body count out and, and back. And they seem to do better with the transition. So as, as guys that are new back in country and have had this decompression time, I'd like your opinion on uh, from both of you separately on this theory that I have that part of what's really making it hard for our soldiers now that are coming home, they're almost coming home too fast. You're you're in country one day and three or four days later, especially those guys that are ETSing out, they're just in the middle of society again. We're like in World War II, they got on a ship and they might be with people that understood them for three months or more during that transition home. And they they need some some different programs like what you're doing and maybe some other things to to reassimilate, to get that decompression time, because the speed at which they come home today seems to me to be part of the problem. What are your thoughts on that? And I'll let each of you figure who goes first and, and second on that one. Yeah, Sean, you want to start on that? Did you, didn't you come home on a boat from OIF-1 as well? No, I came, uh, I returned on, on flights both times. And you're okay. right, I remember reading that um, in other places as well. It's the, uh, the decompression period during the long ship ride home. Um, definitely makes a big difference. I even heard that from uh, my solo OF1 vets who used to come home on a ship, uh, and they agreed wholeheartedly. It was a completely different experience than us who, you know, we got back, yeah, you got off the ship or you got off the plane, and then boom, you're back in, in normal society, whereas, uh, you know, just a few moments, you know, days before, you were actually in the fight. Um, so that makes a big difference. Um, as far as what they're doing now, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, the warrior transition classes consist of a, uh, you know, a handful of PowerPoints, which, you know, do not even come close to <laughs> the transition that's actually required. And, uh, yeah, so absolutely, something like hiking the trail, I mean, that's probably going to be the, uh, you know, one of the most effective transition activities you can do is spending, you know, five to six months in the woods just hiking with yourself, and, uh, you know, readjusting and decompressing, so. 
Yeah, I, I, I would echo everything that Sean said there. Uh, I've, I've only had the experience of coming, you know, straight back on on a plane. Um, but as far as the, the the reintegration, you know, back into society, I think as well. Uh, one of the things that Sean and I discovered during our hike this summer is that the veterans organizations can be a huge part of that, and you know, not just adjusting to, to normal society, but also finding a job. And just you know, start starting life over as a civilian once they get back, once veterans get back to their hometowns. It, my opinion of that too is that like more work needs to be done with the transisting veterans to make sure that they understand like it, it's okay to go to these groups and ask for help, or it's okay to need this. Like I think some of them like have even some level of survivor's guilt. Like, well, I'm I'm whole, so I shouldn't have a problem. You know, I I left guys behind that didn't make it. And, and, like, we need more of an outreach to let these guys know, like, this is okay and it's it's absolutely uh, normal to need this transitional period. Yeah, I think the one issue with that, though, is uh, you know, speaking from experience both of myself and watching other people that have come home that have uh, experienced, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of fighting overseas is a lot of times you as the individual don't really see the changes in yourself. It really requires, you know, friends and family to point out, hey, you've got a drinking problem now, or hey, you're isolating yourself from friends and family um, before that really even comes to, before you even realize it as an individual. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Or you, you know, you're just you're always angry, or you're you're not yourself, and and then I think families too also need to, on one hand, help out with pointing that out, and the other hand, like, give them some space. I mean, like a much more minor thing, but I remember that. When I first got out of the military, I came home and I was hanging out with a bunch of guys that I hung out with back in high school. And we did the thing that we always did, you know, got some beer and went out and hung out in a place out by a lake. And I took a couple of beers and walked off, you know, 50 yards away and, and sat by myself for 10 minutes. And you would have thought that, you know, I barbecued a lamb on, on the, the hood of the car or something. They were, they, it was like really strange to them that I would even just, just go away. And I think that, and, and it wasn't a big deal, you know, and I think that there's a lot of times that, Family members and friends just don't understand that there's like there's got to be some level of like a halfway meeting. Like you want to help the vet reintegrate, but you also need to give the vet some space. Yeah, absolutely. So on um, on your your warrior hike, um, how can our listeners help out? I mean, there are opportunities for them to get out uh, and hit the trail with you. Is there ways they can just contribute? Because we have an extremely pro veteran audience here that's looking for ways that they can help. Yeah, absolutely. Um, our, our website is www.warriorhike.com. Again, it's warriorhike.com. Um, and you can contribute on the website. There's a donate tab there. Um, as well as, you know, we'd be interested to hear from folks. Uh, our contact information is on there in, in planning to hike for next year. Um, we're already done with the hike for this year. We're actually both uh, starting business school right now. Um, but we're we're recocking for next year right now, and we're looking for people that either want to hike or want to support in some way. Um, so please, a- absolutely reach out to us. And some of the things we're looking to do with people who are interested in hiking under the Warrior Hike umbrella next year is uh, getting corporate sponsors to provide not only hiking equipment but also supplies uh, that will you know, ideally be no cost to the, the veterans. And then we've also talked to the VFW posts that we held the fundraisers at this year and asked them would they be interested in supporting 
veterans that are hiking the trail next year? And they said, absolutely. So the design we're looking at is once you come off the trail and you go into town, uh, the VFW posts or any veterans organization for that matter, the American Legion, um, and that Marine Corps League will meet the veterans as they come off the trail, you know, have like a barbecue for them or something, you know, give them a place to stay, uh, and pretty much take care of them as they come into town. Because that's really the biggest cost of hiking the Appalachian Trail is your town days. So if the veteran organizations are willing to support the veterans as they come into town as well, that's another huge cost savings. So essentially what we're looking to do is ultimately, you know, we want to provide hiking the Appalachian Trail almost to no cost to the veterans. You know, it sounds like a very small request to me uh, in return for the work that they do and, and the risk that they take uh, on all of our behalf. So I, I would bet there's a lot of people out there. And I would say those of you that financially can't do much, if there's a VFW in your area and you're close to the trail, let them know about this. Just help coordinate these things. I, I imagine that would be a huge help to you guys. Absolutely, yeah. So how much money did you guys manage to raise for the vets you're, you're on your you know first hike? I uh, just checked the balance before we started the interview, and we're just shy of $46,000 right now. That's awesome. That's absolutely awesome. Do you guys have any thoughts on eventually, like, making this more of a nationwide thing? Like, you guys are kind of heading up like the AT, but there's there's great trails all over America, and there's veterans that come home to different parts all over America. So have you thought about maybe branching Warrior Hike out to be something bigger that way? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're looking at uh, expanding to the PCT um, as well as the CDT in, in future years, uh, the Pacific Crest Trail as well as the Continental Divide Trail. Um, and, you know, I think we're going to need to figure out the model on the Appalachian Trail first, uh, and once we get you know get next year done, then potentially the year after would be you know expanding out to the other trails. And have you guys thought about maybe? like having certain spots on the trail, some of the easier stuff, a flatter terrain, where you could have, like, I guess, like, portion hikes for some of the disabled vets so that, you know, people that are not really in, in physical condition anymore to make the whole hike, but to make parts of the hike that are a little bit more conducive to what they're doing. Um, there's a big difference between, you know, hiking the ridge lines in Vermont and hiking the flatlands in South Carolina. Yeah, what we're going to do is, uh, just like we did this year, we're going to post... Uh, a general schedule on our website. So they'll be in you know, this town, this date, and then they'll be in this town at this date. And so if people are interested in hiking portions of a trail, they can meet up with the veterans, you know, at a certain town and then hike to the next town with them if they want or however long they want to go. And actually we had that happen quite a few times uh, this year. We had uh, a number of people uh, that had heard about us and started following us online that, you know, made it a special point to come out and meet us and hike with us for a couple of days. And I imagine that was probably a pretty big deal to have people just show up and be like, hey, you know, we wanted to hike with you for a bit and, and share their stories and things like that. Yeah, it was enlightening. It was really uh, it was a, it was a good experience. So, again, if folks want to uh, want to help out, where's the best way they can learn more about you guys? It's uh, www.warriorhike.com. That's the, really the best method. And you guys have, like, Facebook, and do you have anything else that you, you're updating? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the Facebook page, we updated all, all during the entire hike, so we had pictures from every leg, and you can go there and read the stories and uh, look at the pictures. Um, and then the, the main website is where uh, w where we have the donation tab. 
Uh, and then we also have a Twitter account as well. Okay, cool. I, I'm, I, see, I see the Twitter on your site. Now, what I'll do is I'll make sure that I put uh, links in the show notes for the site, the Facebook, and the Twitter account uh, so the audience can uh, follow you guys, help you out, and uh, help help make this into something even bigger because I think you guys are on to something really, really special here that I, I look forward to watching grow over the years. I look forward to supporting it in any way that I can. And I, I want to thank uh, both of you, Mark and Sean, both for your service, sir. Uh, it was it, it's a it's a tough thing to do in this day and age. Uh, things are different than than uh, back when I was in. There's a lot more complexity out there, and it takes special people to uh, to serve in the capacity that you guys did. So thank both of you. Well, right, thanks thanks a lot for having us on the show. Appreciate it. Yeah, we appreciate it. Also, if uh, anyone who is interested uh, in following us and how everything is going to develop for the following years, if you uh, like our Facebook page and then follow us on Twitter. We're going to be doing regular updates to keep everybody abreast of our progress as far as getting corporate sponsors, posting the schedule, updating the website, and then letting everyone know what they need to do if they're interested in, uh, in hiking next year. Well, one more thing I'm going to do for you guys. I'm going to reach out to my sponsors and let them know about what you're doing and, and let them know if they want to support you guys to get in touch with you in any way that they can. Uh, and I'll also say that you guys have an absolute open invitation uh, it doesn't even it can be a you know five minute little spot if you have something coming up and you need some help with or when you get ready to start your hike next year or anything like that. Let me know. We'll work you into the schedule uh, around everything else to make sure you guys can get on. And I'm happy to do whatever I can to help you guys get the word out. And again, thank you. All right, thanks a lot. All right, hey, thanks again. Uh, those are just two awesome guys, and this is a little bit different format. Usually we end the show with the interview, but the interview only went about 15 minutes, and I think it's because these guys knew what they had to say, said it, and got it done. That's what military people are known for. Um, but I didn't want to leave you with a short show today, and I thought that some things maybe were left a little bit unsaid uh, from a standpoint of, you know, these guys are home now. And they've been home for a year at the most, I guess now, year, year and a half. And things look very different when you've been, you know, let's call it home for 20-ish years, 18 years, I guess, for me. Uh, things change, your perspectives change, but you can still go back to them. So I, I, what I kind of like to do is really explain to you guys what it was like from the time I joined the military, served in the military, came home from the military, some of the conflicts, and then the years up till like now. Don't worry, it's not going to be but maybe a 20-minute story, but I just want to give you guys a perspective, especially those who have never served. I, I want to try to get you to understand some things about what it's like because it's it will nev you'll never understand. You'll never really understand without doing it. And those of you who are serving now and will be coming home, I want you to know what to expect. And those of you who are home, are dealing with the transition, and are starting to find conflicts, I want you to know that there's light at the end of the rainbow, so to speak. And I know of three different military personnel who have told me, two to my face, one through correspondence, that they were at the verge of suicide, and that some of the things that they found within TSP and our community took them away from that dark place and gave them hope for the future. And if you can do that for one person, you're, you're really blessed. And I feel massively blessed that I've had the opportunity to have some level of influence in the lives of people like that. And maybe today, maybe just one more. Because that's, that's more than any man could ask for 
to to have that type of influence on somebody. So that's why I'm adding this kind of a, appendix to today's show. So I joined the Army at 17. I needed a signature from my father to join. Um, and with the strained relationship of my father, my mother, my entire family, it seemed kind of ironic that I needed anybody's permission to do anything to me. But that's what I needed. So he did what I asked him to do and signed over uh, basically my my rights in a way at my request. Because when you join the military, a lot of the rights you take for granted, you give up. And I don't think many people understand at their age when they when they enlist at 18, you know, 17, 18, 19 years of age, that's exactly what you're doing. That I've had people email me in the past with stories of soldiers trying to do something and their free speeches speeches being violated. I'm like, now you don't understand. While you're active duty, especially while you're on the job, while you're in service, while you're deployed, you don't get free speech, and you really can't run a military that way anyway. But you don't get it, and there's a lot of other things you don't get. So, you know, what makes a kid in the coal region of Pennsylvania that loves to fish and hunt, loves to be in the mountains, loves his freedom more than anything else in the world, agree to go do something with, you know, not complete blinders on? I understood that I would be restricted in movement and I would have a, you know, a, a job that wasn't just an eight to five job and that I would go through, you know, training and I, you know, I wanted to do airborne race in the beginning. I knew that would be yet another level. And I went to as many schools as I could get to while I was in. I went to recovery school. I went to jungle school. I went to air assault school. So I, I did all these things in knowing that every time I would volunteer to do something like this, that I would be in a more restrictive environment. And, you know, and I only did this for three years, but I really went like all out for those three years because I thought if I was going to do something, I was going to do it right. And that kind of leads me back to what made me do it in the first place and the mindset that I had at the time. I grew up in a place where a man was valued because he worked hard. A man was valued because he worked hard. He wasn't valued because he had money and stuff. In fact, you could have a dead, broke-ass failure of a man, but if he physically busted his ass every day, people valued that. People look and say, what a hard-working man. Too bad he doesn't have more. And if a guy was successful but didn't look like he was physically busting his ass, he was kind of looked down upon as one of those rich guys. And that was the mentality I grew up with. I grew up with quite a bit of you know prejudice left in the air uh, against certain groups. And I had all of this conflict because I knew better, but yet when you're taught that way, that's how you think. And there was something in me that said, you got to get something more out of this. And I looked around and said, well, where am I going to go work hard around here? And the reality is there weren't a lot of jobs. There weren't a lot of opportunities to work hard. And the ones that were there weren't really opportunities to move up or ever make anything out of myself. And I looked at college, and I went, this is not for me. I, I, have, I was bored here for four years in high school. I can't do four more years of this crap. Uh, this isn't for me either. And I met an Army recruiter, and you know, one day I took the ASVAB test, the test that determines what kind of job you can get. And I did it to get out of a class, actually like a whole half day of classes. Like, oh, if I take this test, I can, I can go take this test and, you know, get out of class. And if I remember right, like the big carrot was when you're finished with the test, you can leave school for the day. You don't have to go back to class when you're done. You're, you're out for the whole afternoon. So, you know, I walk in and take this test that's supposed to take like several hours and I knock it out in like 45 minutes. I ended up with one of the highest scores that you could possibly get. Uh, you know, scoring in the 98, 90, 99 percentile, which is not a score of like 99% right. It's like that means you're in the top 1% of everybody that took the test through that rotation, you know, army-wide or military-wide or however they measure that. And I got this army recruiter saying, you can do anything you want. 
anything you want in the military, you can go in the military and tell you can do anything you want. And I'm like, I like working on trucks. I like working on cars. I want to be a mechanic. Because I still had this thing holding me back that I needed a manual labor job, you know, to be valued. So that's what I did. And I went through basic and I went through AIT and, you know, I, I went through recovery school and I went to airborne school and, you know, I, I got deployed and eventually I ended up in, in Panama and did deployments there uh, to Costa Rica, did deployments there into Honduras, did several other deployments while I was there, some other schools while I was there. Um, and in all that, I found both misery and peace. I found peace because for the first time in my life, I felt like I was surrounded by people that knew what the hell they were doing, and when they were going to go somewhere, they were going to freaking go there. In the Army, even if you're not marching, people, by the time you get through with training, you, if you're going from point A to point B, there's no mucking around, you go. It's done. And when you're doing it, you know, formally, you're marching, and there's this order to things. And as somebody that I, as I've confessed in the past, I believe I dealt with Asperger's as a child, which is kind of like a cross between ADD and, and mild autism, uh, the best I understand it. This order was like, I hated being told to do it, but yet I liked the fact that there was nobody in my way when I was going somewhere, because there was an order to it. And I guess the, the, the time that set the biggest impact on me was six months in Honduras, where, you know, I did my job more than I ever did any other place. You know, I actually was a mechanic every day because when you're building a road with a deployment of 500 men, somebody will break some piece of equipment every single day. So it wasn't, you know, changing oil in a truck that didn't, you know, sometimes in the garrison, I'd be changing oil in a truck, doing maintenance on a truck that hadn't run other than for the operator to come down and start it once a week for freaking six months to a year that if you moved it out when you moved it out to do the oil change there was you know a difference in the coloration of the tarmac it was parked on i was like really doing my job and i was surrounded by all of these people and if you want to really know about that experience you can listen to the episode called lessons from the aguan river valley i'll, I'll put a, a a link in today's show notes in, in that one as well so I did that experience, and I got to see what the third world was really like. I got to see what people starving was really like. I got to see people that owned cows, and those cows were considered part of their wealth, but the cows looked like they were starving. And I spent a lot of time also when I was in Panama on the Cerro Azul Mountains, and that reminded me of home. And I had this kind of this this conflict of do I want to do this for the rest of my life or not? And, and by the time I got near that window of making that choice, it was clear to me, and I think it was clear to my command that like that wasn't really the right path for me and I decided that it was time to leave the military and go back to civilian life and I left with all of this training and all of this knowledge and all of this sense of purpose and all of this order and I wasn't a great garrison soldier a garrison soldier is like you know how well is your haircut how well are your boots shined how well is your uniform look and I had like my way of cheating it I went out, like, because whenever you had to do an inspection or guardy or whatever, you had to be, like, strack, which is, like, just perfect. So, you know, my way of cheating it was I went out and bought all of the equipment they issued me, brand new. I went out and bought a set of BDU uniforms. I went and got a set of boots. I had them professionally pressed, professionally shined. I even had the, the belt, you know, the regular, your regular trouser belt and everything. And whenever one of those things were going to come up, I was a good soldier. And I went and got the high and tight, uh, you know, airborne haircut. And I put on everything was brand new and crisp right from the hat down to the boots. And the inspection was stood, and then the stuff went right back into the wall locker or right back off the bed if it was a Barrett's inspection or whatever, and put away and never used, and I put my regular gear on. 
So I was I was like the guy that you thought was like the great soldier, but I was taking shortcuts everywhere. Because I didn't understand or, or view the importance of whether or not there was one speck of dust on a canteen. That it was easier just to keep the canteen in a bag and pull it out with no dust on it. And they would still gig some of my stuff, and that just told me I was right. So I had this this conflict, you know, and, and I decided, you know, like, this is not the way I want to live the rest of my life. So I get out of the military, and I go home. I go home, and I think that's a very unique word because it's the same thing and something different for every single soldier that uses it, especially a soldier that's deployed overseas. I think there's a big difference in being stationed in North Carolina when you're from Virginia than there is to being stationed in Panama or in Germany and being from Virginia. You don't get to go home. You know, I had friends that were in the military before I went in that I would see like every couple of weeks. The one guy uh, that actually dated my sister was a Marine and he was down in Virginia. And every couple of weeks he was up on his motorcycle, you know. And when you get deployed, you, you, you know, I came home, I came home three times and twice were for funerals. Once for my grandfather and once for my grandmother. And those were not happy return homes. And they were, Actually, at bad times for me with training and classes and interrupting, but you go home for that. And I didn't really see what was going on at home because I pretty much came home, I went to the services, and I went back. I came home only one time on true leave, and I was home for about three weeks, and I hung out with all of my friends from high school and all, and I hadn't been gone that long, and they were pretty much still doing the same thing, and that kind of seemed normal to me, and I liked it. But when I got out for good and I went home and they were all still doing the same thing, I thought, you know, I'm at this point in my life where I have to make a choice now about what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And, and these folks seem like they've made a choice to just continue what they're doing for the rest of their life. And all of the order was gone. All of the concept that, you know, there wasn't a, there was never really a crowd in the military, a gaggle. There was always a, a, a sense of purpose to movement. So you never, like, just going to a shopping mall was like, this, this sucks. Like, and to this day, I still struggle with things like this. You know, why is this person in my way? Why every time I turn down an aisle, is there someone there? It's completely unreasonable to think that way. I mean, I know that I'm the one that's wrong, but when you, you're, you've gone from that sense of order to a sense of chaos, it's difficult to deal with. It's not on par with dealing with injury and PTSD and all these other things, but I just want you to understand that even the guy that just, like, everything seems to go great for him, these are the conflicts that are in you. Like, how do I deal with this now? How do I, how do I deal with people? And you would talk to people who you grew up with, and they would expect you to be exactly the same guy who you were when you left because in a lot of ways they were still the same person they were but it was bigger than that because they had changed they, to me they seemed very much the same person they had grown they had changed they had new responsibilities but they had all done it with each other so it's just like you know you have your kid and from eight to nine you're thinking he grew some but when grandma that lives in another state comes she's like oh my god you don't realize how much he's grown because you were there watching him do it. Now, if you are the nine-year-old kid next to him, your friends in school, and the two of you are growing about the same rate, you don't really see it at all in each other. But when someone comes from the outside, it's very, very different. So all of these people that I was so comfortable with in high school, I wasn't comfortable with anymore. 
I just wasn't comfortable with them. I, I told the story about just you know grabbing a couple beers and sitting on a rock for 15 minutes, and you thought I had leprosy after that. The way they were just like they couldn't understand that I needed that time. And I spent a lot of time hunting and fishing. I spent my time on the trail. It doesn't compare at all to what these guys did. And then I actually, you know, like I bought this little $400 Mustang II car, and I drove up further on the AT, and I went up into like Vermont and New Hampshire. I spent time in the Green and the White Mountains. I went into the Adirondacks. And then I decided I'm going to finally, you know, kind of meet up with this buddy of mine, from the army that we had agreed maybe we would do this that had a place in Texas and I took my time getting there. I went through, you know, Virginia and, and Kentucky and the Blue Ridge Mountains and I spent time there and, you know, I kind of got to his place almost and I was like, you know, 10 miles away from getting to his apartment and he was at work and I figured I'll go find the apartment, then I'll go have dinner and he was working second shift and it was going to be, you know, pretty late but I was going to actually surprise him. He thought I was getting in the next day. Car broke down. Timing belt went out. That's not something you fix on the side of the road. I had to call him. He had to come from work and tow my car to his house. And it took a couple months to be, be able to save up enough money and all and, and get the car fixed and kind of get on with life. And uh, I took a job busting tires. That was the first job I took, working for Firestone. And I was a mechanic from the military, and now I'm just a jiffy lube. Bust tires and do oil changes. But, hey, it paid some money, and that seemed like a good thing, and... About three weeks into it, I came home, and if you know what it's like to be covered in tire dirt, I looked at my face in the mirror, and I was covered in tire dirt, my hands, my arms, I cleaned up as best I could before I came home, I was going to take a shower, and basically when you're working on tires, you, you have to clean twice, you, you clean yourself and then you clean the tub, and I looked in the mirror, and as I've mentioned in, in past shows, my father spent many years as a uh, business owner of a service station, and his primary business was tires, and he came home looking like that every night. He was a miserable person while he was doing this. He was a workaholic. Um, and I looked in the mirror and I saw my father. And not in a good way. And I don't mean any disrespect to my father, but when I saw that, I quit my job the next day, which people thought was crazy because I didn't have a job. And I took a job in telemarketing and met some people. And eventually I kind of found my way into telecommunications and sales. And that led to all of the successes that I've talked to you guys about in the past. But there was a period of about a year there before I kind of found my groove in society. And I spent a lot of time alone. Uh, my friend worked second shift, so I spent a lot of time that winter just listening to music with the fire burning. I wrote poetry, I read books, and I just tried to figure out what the hell I was going to do with myself. And years into this, I would be at places and I would hear somebody say, like, America sucks. And I'd want to tear their throat out. I really would. I'm like, you know what, you, you don't have any freaking idea, you know, of, of what people do so that you have a right to say that. And if you disagree with things about this country, fine. But to say that the whole country sucks, well, frankly, that means you suck too. And I'm agreeing with you on at least that. You know, and I got pretty close to fistfights a couple times over statements like that. You know, and as a, as a young guy out of the military, I did see a lot of what was wrong. I went on kind of a spiritual quest. Um, I, I, I found myself completely turned off by organized religions and faith, even though I gave it a good shot. I found myself many years later, and, and most of you don't even really know what I classify myself as, but I would classify, my, classify myself today as a deist. 
I believe in a God. I don't fully understand or explain that God. I believe that there's an organization, an architecture to the universe, a spiritual world that we can tap into. I respect other people's faiths, but you know, I have this is my faith, and if you share it, great, and if you don't, great. I have no desire to change anybody's viewpoint. And uh, but I had that whole conflict, and I went from you know kind of mysticism to conventional Christianity, and back and forth. Grew up Catholic, and all of this really though stemmed from the fact that I went off and spent those years in the military. I believe if I hadn't done that, in some ways I wouldn't have been shaped into the guy that does this show every day. But in some ways my life would have been easier. I would have found a job. I would have done my job. I would have bought a little house somewhere in Pennsylvania, and I would have lived there until I died. Like most people that I went to school did, they either went to college, got a career somewhere else, or they took that path. And even many of the people that served in the military just went home and did that. And I feel like I came like an inch away from it. But there was too much conflict in me. And if I hadn't taken that decompression, I might be a very happy person accomplishing little today, or I might be a very depressed person, or I might be successful. I have no idea. But I know the conflict was there. And I know that above all, what I needed was time. I needed time to work this out. I couldn't have people telling me, hey, this is what you should be doing. It's like I just spent a lot of my life with people telling me not what I should be doing, but what I was going to do, thank you. And kind of coming into present day, as I look back now and I think to myself, thank God. I wasn't 17 years old in 1966 because I would have been at the front of the line to join either the Army or the Marine Corps to go fight in Vietnam. And I look back at that war and I go, what a mess. What a mess. God, I respect the men who went and served and did their duty, but why? Why did we do this? And when I can see that clearly looking back that far, I look at things like the first Gulf War and go, did we need to take that approach? Is that what led to this, this recent conflict? What are they doing to our guys in Afghanistan? Go here, shoot those guys, but even though those ones are shooting, don't shoot at them. Take this hill, abandon this hill. Didn't we do this already? And I look at it and I go, so many people have given so much and they still believe in the mission. And they're not entirely wrong, but damn it, they're blind and they're not entirely right either. And I look at these guys coming home and there's nothing for many of them. Because let me tell you, when you come home, you think that serving is going to matter. Not to your friends and family. That's a given. It's going to matter. Not to passers-by on the street. Not to the kind old lady that notices your cap, says U.S. Army on it, and walks up to you and says, thank you. And God, please do that stuff because you have no idea how important it is. No idea. But you think it's going to matter to people that you give a resume to. You think you're going to be able to find a job. At least a better job than you could have found before you went away. And many times it doesn't mean that at all. And you, you're sitting there with a minimum wage job. No one gives a shit. Not when it comes to like things that are going to pay the bills. 
And some of the people that stayed behind by now are at least are making double minimum wage and they're actually doing better than you and they didn't do anything like you did and you just wonder what the hell is the point? And I can only imagine what it's like today after two or three tours in a combat zone for these guys to come home and deal with all of that and more plus the, 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 the trauma that they've experienced mentally. And what I want to say to all of you guys that are dealing with that now, or maybe you're 30 or 40 and you, you're, you served back when I did, or you're, you're 60 and you served in, in the 70s or the late 60s with the Vietnam War and all. All of these conflicts are completely normal. All these internal conflicts, all of these things like, should I have done that? Was it the right thing to do? Would I do it differently? And I think this is the important thing to take away from this if you're that group. The answer is you don't know, and it doesn't really matter. All that matters is how you live from this day forward. Because what I want you to understand is that everybody asks themselves these same questions, whether they've served or not. The thing is, when you've served, and you've actually, for a period of time, given away part of your life, because it's not just a job. Even if the recruiter, you young people that are talking to recruiters that are making it sound that way, well, you'll be in the Air Force and you'll have a job doing this or that and you'll be able to get your coffee for breakfast every morning. It's just a job. It'll be like a job. It's not just like a job. Certain fundamental rights that you have will disappear and I believe in some ways it's worth it. But because of that, the questions will be bigger in your mind, in your heart, in your soul, should I have done this? Did it really matter? Did I really do the right thing? What about those that didn't come home? I pretty much served during peacetime. But I had two friends seriously injured and one dead. In three years. That's a lot to take in when you're freaking 20 years old. It really is. One was a pure accident, just a pure accident in a vehicle, and the guy ended up paralyzed for the rest of his life. One was a jump training exercise, and the guy got killed. Jumping out of planes is dangerous. It's just part of it. The other one was a guy that was dealing with a lot of these questions before he got out, got really drunk, Walked out on a third-story ledge of a building and fell off. Ended up, he ended up paralyzed from the chest down for the rest of his life. I asked questions like, was that worth it? I don't know. These guys that are dealing with combat are asking those questions times a hundred. And they're going to keep asking them and they're going to keep seeking answers and they're going to need time. That's the biggest thing I think they're going to need is time and space and understanding. And they need people to listen to them more than talk to them. And I think they need to get together and talk to each other. I think they need the decompression that we talked about. I think they need those time. I think that we need more programs like gardening programs for veterans and urban farming programs and hiking programs and anything that we can do because these men and women, again, whether you believe that they should be where they are or not, did it in their hearts, their souls, and their minds for the right reason, with a sense of duty and purpose that's hard to understand if you've never been willing to do it yourself. 
And that's something very important for us all to understand. And that's why I want you guys to help out these guys with Warrior Hike. I think it's a great idea, one of the best ideas that I've ever heard. I know that taking that time for me was important, and I did it alone. And I think that if I had spent it with, with fellow veterans, I think it would have been even more productive. And I want you to understand that I don't think that any of these men or women want you to feel bad for them. They don't want sympathy. They just want to be understood. They want their service respected, even if you disagree with it. And I want to tell you something. I want to tell you a great lie that you've been told in the past as we led up into you know, these, these two current wars that we're in. You were told repeatedly, specifically by the right and specifically by right-wing radio hosts, you cannot support the troop if you don't support his mission. That is a lie. That is a ugly, detestable, gross, disgusting lie. You absolutely can support a soldier, even if you wish he wasn't sent where he was sent. You absolutely can, and you absolutely should. So I'm asking you guys, as members of this audience today, get by Warrior Hike today. Figure out a way that you can help them out and help them out. And try to understand, those of you who haven't ever been there, what it's like, just a little bit. Just understand it. Don't don't worry about so much whether you should thank somebody or be grateful or, you know, just understand it. That, that's more what these guys want than anything else is understanding. See if you can help. And those of you guys that are in any stage of the things that I'm talking about today, realize there's hope. Because people out there do give a shit. People do care. It doesn't matter if an employer doesn't care if you put United States Marine Corps, U.S. Army, or U.S. Air Force on your resume. It doesn't matter that that doesn't matter to somebody. That doesn't mean people don't give a shit. Plenty of people give a shit. I give a shit. This audience gives a shit. Family and friends that you don't think understand you may not understand you. They can't. They weren't there with you. They care. And they try to understand. If you need help, ask for it. If you think you're too, too much of a man to take help, you're wrong. If you need help, ask for it. And sometimes what you need maybe is just a break. You just need a break. Get away. Take a walk. Take a 2,800-mile walk if you have to. But take a walk and find who you really are. It hasn't been eliminated. It hasn't been taken away from you. Just lost touch with it. People do that in many ways. The military is just great at it. That's how they manufacture soldiers. By, by making you lose touch with some of the compassion that you have. But it's there. I've seen it there. I've seen it every time I've seen a soldier stop to offer what was left of their MRE to somebody that was hungry. I've seen it every time I've seen a school built in a remote place when soldiers were told, yeah, you can go home. I've seen it over and over again. It's never gone. Sometimes you just don't have as big a finger on it. You just don't have as much of a feeling for it. But it's still there. And with that... This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer, it's like
there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Nobody up there cares, they're living for 